Well, as I read by one author, he was hailed as one of the most brilliant minds of the 20th century. The word genius gets thrown around pretty loosely, but in this case, it was an understatement. His thesis on the dynamics of human conflict would revolutionize economic theory and eventually win the Nobel Prize. He did his work at an age when many people are still trying to figure out how to move away from mom and dad. Before he was out of his 20s, he was a distinguished professor at MIT. But at the height of his career, John Nash suffered a breakdown. He interrupted a lecture to announce that he was on the cover of Life magazine disguised as the Pope. He claimed foreign governments were communicating with him through the media, and he turned down a prestigious post at the uh, University of Chicago because he said he was about to be named Emperor of Antarctica. In the movie A Beautiful Mind, based on a book with the same title, we see the characters and hear the voices that exist only in John Nash's head. Unconnected to reality. They made him feel important as if he were the center of the universe. They played on his darkest fears. When he listened to them, they destroyed his relationships, distorted his perceptions, and made him obsessive, irrational, and terrified. They led, ultimately, they would lead him to death if he listened to them. John inhabits a world, writes Mark Buchanan, that doesn't actually exist. His closest friend, his friend's lovely niece, the CIA director who employs him in dangerous and clandestine operations are all figments of his imagination, of his broken mind. But what makes the story of John Nash so remarkable was that he was actually able to learn over time the art of discernment. He learned to test the voices, to find out which ones were false and which ones were true. He had to learn to not listen to the ones that led to death. He learned not to dwell on what they were telling him. He learned not to do what they requested. And while never completely freed from his illness, he discovered that over time their hold on his mind could greatly be weakened. He experienced, in a sense, a revolution of the mind. Nash speaks at one point in the film about how, in a way, his battles are the battles of all of us. He says, and I quote, I'm not so different from you. We all hear voices, he says to a friend. We just have to decide which ones we're going to listen to. Now, there are a lot of voices competing for our attention in the world today, wouldn't you say? Many of them claim to have a, a corner on the truth. Over the years, the clamor of misleading voices have reached a fever pitch and led many into strange and dangerous spiritual places. For instance, just last week, my wife and I were watching a series on the fascinating stories of four of Scotland's most magnificent castles and estates. And the last episode in this series dealt with Roslyn Chapel, just outside of Edinburgh, which we have had the joy of visiting. Recounting the strange history and legends surrounding Roslyn Chapel brought a flood of memories regarding a controversial release some years ago of the film version of Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. You remember that? Anybody see that movie? Well, parts of that movie were filmed at Roslyn Chapel. And some of its intriguing past was brought into that story. Although written as fiction in the book, Statements made by that author would lead the unsuspecting to believe that it is fiction based on historical facts. Careful discernment, however, leads inevitably to the conclusion that nothing could be further from the truth. The idea that Jesus Christ may have been in a sexual relationship with Mary Magdalene and had children with her is flagrantly false. 
In fact, critics have accused Dan Brown of distorting and fabricating history. For example, Richard Abanis wrote, the most flagrant aspect is not that Dan Brown disagrees with Christianity, but that he utterly warps it in order to disagree with it. To the point of completely rewriting a vast number of historical events and making the matter worse has been Brown's willingness to pass off his distortions as facts with which innumerable scholars and historians agree. Yet even though the book has been extensively denounced by many Christian denominations and consistently criticized for its historical and scientific inaccuracies, the novel nonetheless became a worldwide bestseller that sold over 80 million copies and translated into 44 languages. Recalling that blast from the past brought up another even more ridiculous voice that was once widely embraced some time ago. Remember Shirley MacLaine? Remember Shirley MacLaine in a made-for-TV miniseries of her book Out on a Limb, twirling around on the beach, declaring, I am God, I am God. In her subsequent book, Dancing in the Light, Ms. MacLaine attempted to explain her self-deification as a logical syllogism which, by the way, is not only patently illogical, as one writer comments, but also brazenly blasphemous. She wrote the following in that book. Here's the syllogism. I know that I exist, therefore I am. I know that the God source exists, therefore it is. Since I am part of that force, then I am that I am. F. Laggard Smith writes in his book, Out on a Broken Limb, <laughs> just in case the significance of that last phrase is lost on anyone, it should be pointed out that I am, that I am, is a biblical reference applied exclusively to the creator God of the universe, the one true and living God. And just so we don't leave out the world of musicians... I read a quote by legendary guitarist Carlos Santana, which added his two cents worth of obtuse spirituality to the mix. This is what he said, quote, Spirituality is saying, may the heavens open up and the angels bless everyone with a deep awareness of his own light. Religion says, only Jesus got the light. You're full of expletive and you are in the dark, he says. They are the only ones that got it, and you've got to go through them to get it. Man, in this life, the only thing that's holy is your relationship with your heart, your family, and the air that you breathe, unquote. Really, Carlos? Is that the truth? Now, in juxtaposition to the cacophony of these examples, in addition to countless others, stands the voice of Jesus who quite definitively proclaims, I am the truth. Our battle isn't terribly different than the battle of John Nash, is it? We all hear voices every day. We just have to decide which ones we're going to listen to. So today I want to unpack just one specific portion of one of Jesus' I am statements from the Gospels. It may be Jesus' most famous one and most controversial. It's the one that seems to stand head and shoulders above all the rest, and it not only sent shockwaves through the streets of first century Palestine, but continues to shake the world to its core even today. Because the statement is exclusive, it is explosive, and it is expressive of all that we long for. It marks an end to the human heart's quest for answers, our need for direction, our clamor for security, and our search for significance, none of which are ultimately found in principles or in power trips or in philosophies or in prescriptions. They are found, as we will see today, in a single person. I am, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. 
Now, John 14, 6 summarily defines all that Jesus is and all that we truly need. In a world full of choices, our wayfaring souls need a way-showing Savior. And to that end, Jesus literally says, I am the way. Let me take you to the highest places of life. In a world full of despair, our infected souls need a life-changing Lord. And to that end, Jesus declares, I am the life. Let me give you the most profound meaning to your life. But today, it's my express purpose to focus specifically on one aspect of what Jesus fulfills in that claim in John 14, 6. And it answers the question we all want answered. What is truth? In a world full of voices, our disjointed souls need a truth-telling friend. And to that end, Jesus says, I am the truth. Let me answer your deepest questions about life. So let's dig in to John 14, 6. The first thing I want to point out here is that Jesus is the ultimate personification of truth. He is the ultimate personification of truth. I read an account once of a woman who was being tailgated by a, a stressed out man on a busy street, busy boulevard, and suddenly the light turned yellow just in front of her and she did the right thing, stopping at the crosswalk, even though she could have beaten the red light by accelerating through the intersection. Now the guy who was tailgating obviously hit the roof and he hit the horn. He's screaming in frustration, road rage, as he missed his chance to beat the light. Just out of control. As he was ranting and raving, he heard a tap on the window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. And the officer ordered him to exit the car with his hands up. He was taken to the police station where he was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a cell. And after a couple of hours, a policeman approached the cell and he opened the door and he escorted the man back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with the man's personal effects. I'm sorry for the mistake, he said. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn, making derogatory gestures and cussing a blue streak at the woman who was in front of you. I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the WWJD and Follow Me to Sunday School bumper stickers on the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk, and naturally, I assumed you had stolen the car. <laughs> Jesus was the ultimate personification of the truth. Are you as a Christian? Psalm 86, 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord. And I will walk in your, say it with me, truth. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. In, in 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than this, John writes, than to hear of my children walking in the, say it with me, truth. You see, John was almost obsessive when it came to the truth in his writings. He wrote about it compulsively. Listen to his repetitive words. 2 John, verses 1 to 4. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever, Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do so from the Father. In 3 John, the first four verses, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth, that is, how you are walking in truth. 
Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, it says in verse 5. Skip down to verse 8. Therefore, we ought to support such men so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. It's one thing to tell somebody the truth. It's something else to teach someone the truth and even to live the truth in front of others. But it's quite another thing entirely to say that you are the truth to somebody, right? Jesus claimed to be the embodiment of the truth. But what is truth? What does the word truth refer to? here in this text. According to one source, for the Greek philosophers such as Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, truth was something marinated in your mind, discerned through self-knowledge and self-analysis. It was largely intellectual. Truth for the Greeks referred to that which was in accord with reality as opposed to that which seems to be real. The Hebrews, however, had a very different concept. Truth to them was rooted in what could be trusted. Not just what could be contemplated. The Hebrew word for truth suggests the idea of firmness and stability and reliability. The Hebrew idea of truth was not nearly as cerebral for them as it was for the Greeks. In the, in the Old Testament, the Lord is called the God of truth... Because he is the one upon whom people can safely rely. Amen? They can trust him. The Old Testament depicts God as something firm, something reliable, something trustworthy, something faithful. I mean, just think about how God is described in the scriptures in the Old Testament. How is God described in the Old Testament? A rock, a strong tower a fortress, a refuge, a stronghold, a shield. Even though they felt that they could not adequately and fully contemplate him, the Jews believed that they could trust him. Take a sampling of how the Old Testament paints the portrait of God, of the God of truth. God is truth, says Woodrow Kroll. His character demands it. His word declares it. Take a breeze through the Old Testament scriptures. Exodus 34, 6 describes God as, quote, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, agrees, calling Jehovah, quote, a God of truth and without injustice. David calls him the Lord God of truth in Psalm 31, 5. Again, David says in Psalm 86, 15, quote, But you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in mercy and truth. Prophet Isaiah also calls him a God of truth in Isaiah 65, 16. Throughout the Old Testament, Jehovah is depicted as true and as truthful, a God characterized by truth. Truth is one of the essential qualities of God's nature, and without truth, God could not be God. Hear that? God's character, God's attributes, and all that he is testifies that he is trustworthy. He is true. He is unshakable, unchangeable, incorruptible. He holds everything together. This is how God is depicted in the Old Testament. There is no duplicity with him. No dichotomy. Let me ask you a question. Is there anyone or anything that you know right now that is that trustworthy? That true. Why do you think it sounds so ridiculous to us when somebody like a Shirley MacLaine proclaims that she is God? Why? Because she is clearly not perfect. Not perfectly true. 
There are times when even she would have to admit that her life is flawed, that it's corrupt, sinful. I don't think even she in her self-proclaimed divinity would say that she holds the universe together. Because the world will go on when she dies. Not so if God ceased to exist. But when Jesus makes the claim to be the truth, not merely to teach or live it, there is a world of difference, isn't there? Colossians chapter 1. Just look at that with me for a moment. Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15, Paul writes these words. Fantastic words. Some of the most highest majestic words in the scripture Describing Christ in verse 15 of chapter 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. His life is the picture of truth. Truth in its essence. God has not only revealed the truth to us through the written word, but he did it specifically in the person of Jesus. We can look at Jesus and we can see the embodiment, the personification of God, of the God of truth. Not so with Shirley MacLaine. Great actress, woefully incompetent God. But the Bible says of Jesus first that he explains the character of the Father. In Exodus 34, when Moses received the second set of stone tablets upon which the Ten Commandments were written, verse 6 in that chapter says this, quote, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in grace and truth. This description of God in the Old Testament sounds hauntingly familiar, doesn't it? In the New Testament, we read this description of Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verses 17 and 18 says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who was in the bosom of the Father, meaning Jesus, he has explained him. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, And he, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. And in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, Paul says, For in him, meaning Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's the personification of truth. Jesus claimed, I and the Father are one. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on the account of the works themselves. In John 14, Jesus said that. Jesus has fully explained the character of the Father. You want to know God better? God has provided us the way. Look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Believe in Jesus. God the Son has explained the unexplainable character of God the Father. He is truth, up close and personal. He is. He also embodies the shadows of the past, not just explains the character of the Father, but he embodies the shadows of the past. Jesus is the final reality. You know, the Old Testament is full of types and symbols which point to the reality of Christ. That's actually some of the things we're studying in our Monday night small group. The manna, the rock from which came the water, the lampstand, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, Melchizedek, Adam, 
the high priest, the ram God provided as a substitute in place of Abraham's only son Isaac were all mere shadows of what was to come, the substance of which belongs to Christ, Colossians 2.9 says. That's precisely why Jesus could say with all legitimacy, I am the truth. He's the real deal. He's the truth that casts light upon all the shadows in the Old Testament. But he also exposes the falsehoods of this world. Jesus said the day would come when false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect, he said in Matthew 24, 24. Paul wrote of, quote, false apostles and deceitful workers disguising themselves as apostles of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11. And false brethren who sneak in to spy out our liberty in Galatians 2.4. The obvious implication is that Satan is going to be pretty clever in trying to sow seeds of falsehood among the followers of truth. And don't, for one moment, think that this is just going to occur out there. It'll occur in here. So clever are the falsehoods that are provided by these demons that appear as angels of light that they will be difficult to spot, even by the elect. So what do we do? How do we discern D.L. Moody once said, the best way to show that a stick is crooked is not to argue about it or to spend time denouncing it, but to lay a straight stick right alongside of it. Amen? You want to know the best way to deal with a false voice today, the false voices that we hear today? Get familiar with Jesus, who is the truth. In the insightful words of one man, when Jesus said, I am the truth, he was giving us the best tool to spot the phonies of this world. He's the straight stick that we put up against the crooked ones. But if you don't know Jesus, you don't have a straight stick to measure by, do you? Sure, it's a good idea to know your historical facts, no question about it. But that won't guarantee your spiritual well-being in the long run, will it? The only thing that will protect you and me from falsehood is a living relationship with the truth, Jesus Christ. Amen. He is the standard by which we measure character, righteousness, holiness, behavior, attitude, faithfulness, forgiveness, compassion, humility, grace, patience, obedience, submission. He is the standard that we measure those things by. You name it, he's the measure of it. Listen to these words. In every area of life, we learn to operate with standards. Every area that is except spirituality. It's a good statement, isn't it? Somehow we think that we should, there should be no standards there. If we talk about standards of righteousness, we're afraid we'll offend somebody. If we talk about standards of behavior, everybody thinks we just fell off the turnip truck. If we talk about standards of moderate dress, take that one for example. People think we're fashion failures. But God has a standard for ethical, moral, spiritual, righteous, acceptable behavior. That standard is his character reflected perfectly in the I am God who is Jesus Christ. What standard are you living by? Is it the one that's acceptable to come in here on Sunday mornings and everybody will look at you and say, oh, oh yeah, he's a true Christian or she's a true Christian. That's not the standard. The standard is Jesus and him alone. It is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's who Jesus is. Or do you pick and choose your standards according to your personal desires? Here's what Paul's, Paul wrote in Colossians 1. He is before all things, meaning Jesus, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. 
so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. In other words, he's it. He is all that. The big question is, do you believe it? Do you really live like you believe it? Do I? It's one thing to stand up and preach about it. It's quite another thing to live it every single moment of every single day of your entire life, isn't it? The Bible points us to a Jesus who was before it all and is behind it all. He is not only the personification of truth, but also Jesus, secondly, is the ultimate communicator of truth. In John chapter 18 and verse 37, Jesus said, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. That's a scary statement, isn't it? I've heard it said that some people can't bring themselves to tell a lie. Others can't seem to ever tell the truth. But you know, most people, they simply just can't tell the difference. That's sad. Listen, half of society that we live in today is ready to call everything anybody says a lie, right? The other half is so reticent to identify something as a bold-faced lie that it has created doublespeak terms. Instead of calling a lie a lie, it's referred to as a reality augmentation or, or a terminological inexactitude or the most creative one, a strategic misrepresentation. And marketers do that all the time, don't they? Let me illustrate. Several men are in a locker room at a golf club. A cell phone on a bench rings several times until one of the men engages the hands-free speaker function and begins to talk so everybody can hear. Everyone else in the room stops to listen to this conversation. Man says, hello. Woman on the other side says, honey, it's me. Are you at the club? Man says, yes. Well, I'm at the mall now and I found this beautiful leather coat. It's only $1,000. Is it okay if I buy it? Man says, sure, go ahead if you like it that much. I also stopped by the Mercedes dealership and saw the new 2019 models, and I saw one I really liked. How much? Well, it's just over 60000 Okay, but for that price, I want it with all the options. Great. Oh, and one more thing. The house we wanted last year is back on the market. They're asking nine hundred and fifty grand for it. Well, then go ahead and give them an offer, but just offer them 900000 Okay, see you later. I love you. Bye, the man says. Love you too. Man hangs up the phone. All the other men in the locker room are looking at him like deer in the headlights with astonishment at the way that he just gave his wife permission to do all this stuff. And then he asks, the guy turns around and asks, he says, anyone know who this phone belongs to? <laughs> Here's the moral of the story. Learn to recognize the sound of the right voices. Every liar learns his craft from the master of lies, Satan. Every false teaching originates from the liar himself. Jesus did not soften his words when dealing with the religious leaders who refused to acknowledge him. In John chapter 8, in verse, beginning in verse 42, we read these words. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. 
Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Now can you imagine dealing with people that way in the counseling office? Lighten your load, wouldn't it? Friends, you need to learn to recognize the sound of the voice of truth and stop flirting with the father of lies. You and I need that. Our choices are pretty clear. They're incredibly simple most of the time. We either believe every lie we hear through the various media we frequent and trust every smooth-talking leader that woos us with their words. We either follow every cultural trend because everybody else is doing it, or we lay everything we read and hear and encounter against God's standard of truth. As someone has said, let the chips then fall where they may. The Apostle John urged us to be tirelessly discerning. In 1 John chapter 4, in verses 1 to 3, John writes, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You know, the litmus test for truth is Jesus. That's it. What does the church you attend, this church... Say about Jesus. Well, you hear it today. This is what we say about Jesus. What does your small group leader, the author of the book you're reading currently, or the teacher in your college class maybe, or the worship band that you love so much, or the potential business partner that you may have say about Jesus? Who is he to them? This is who God says he is. God says he is the fulfillment of the written word. John 8, verse 24. says, therefore, Jesus says, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John chapter 5, verse 30. So they went out of the city and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's chapter 4, verse 30. Chapter 5, verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me himself. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. Verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The Bible says he is the fulfillment of the written word. He's also the foundation of the living word. 
Truth has enormous personality, writes author Kelly Monroe. Truth is living, and when Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life in John 14, 6, he was saying that truth is not a theology, it's not a vague philosophy, a law, or some principle for highly successful people. Rather, he was saying that truth is a person, and you are face-to-face -face with him. What happens when you are face-to-face -face with Jesus like you are right now in this word? I'll tell you what happens. You must choose. Believe in him and experience freedom or dismiss him out of hand and continue to live your life in fear. William Barclay writes in the Acts of the Apostles, in his early days, a famous evangelist, Brownlow North, had lived a life that was anything but Christian. Once, just before he was to enter the pulpit in a church in Aberdeen, he received a letter that recalled a shameful series of events he had been engaged in in his former life. And North's stomach turned. Imagine getting a letter like that right before you enter the pulpit. Yeah, I know. That's when people hit you with the worst thing two seconds before you step into the pulpit. The letter concluded by saying, if you have the gall to preach tonight, I'm going to stand up and expose you. So North took that letter and he went to his knees and a few minutes later, he was in the pulpit. And he began his message by reading the letter word for word start to finish. And he said, I want to make it clear that this letter is perfectly true. I am ashamed of what I have read and what I have done, and I come to you tonight not as one who is perfect, but as one who is forgiven. God used that letter and the balance of that man's ministry almost as a magnet to bring people to Christ. Jesus is our ultimate liberator in the truth. John chapter 8 and verse 32. And you know this verse for those of you that have been in the faith for any time. John 8 verse 32. And you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. The scripture says that he frees us from sin. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him in verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. But in verse 36, Jesus said, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Someone once quipped, the truth makes us free, but first it makes us miserable. That's true, isn't it? In a lot of cases. The only way to get over your addiction to sin and my addiction to sin is to get under Christ's influence. The only way to get over the false voices that plague you and me is to put ourselves under the one voice of truth. John Ortberg writes, and God is closer than you think, in a powerful scene toward the end of A Beautiful Mind, that movie, John Nash comes out of a classroom and he encounters a man wanting to speak with him whom he has never seen before. The man says to Nash, I've come to talk with you about being awarded the Nobel Prize. Nash is silent for a moment. He has suffered too much from listening to voices of grandiosity. He's not going to listen to the voice on his own. So he stops one of his students. And he says to him, excuse me, do you see a man standing here? Is he in your line of vision? Is he for real? The student says, yes. So Nash turns to the man. He says, okay, I'll listen to you now. That is a humbling thing for a man with a brilliant mind to have to do. Nash learned to lean into community. To discern which voices were worth listening to 
and which ones weren't. We can do that. The Spirit of Jesus speaks through the community of Jesus. When you are not sure about a voice, my friends, go to some trusted, spiritually mature Christian friends and discuss it. Lean into community. But don't just stop there. For heaven's sake, don't just stop there. Most importantly, put your final trust in Jesus Christ. Because he's the one that secures our salvation. In John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. It does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Let me wrap it up. One of the greatest confrontations with the question of truth of all time, I believe, occurred between Pilate and Jesus. Before him stood the personification, literally the embodiment of the truth. Before Pilate stood the ultimate communicator of truth, the ultimate liberator in truth. And yet Pilate missed it completely. In fact, he even asked the ultimate question of Jesus, what is truth? Now, what has always intrigued me about that is that when Pilate asked that question, Jesus never gave him the final answer that he handed to Thomas in John 14, 6. When he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. Why? Why didn't he give it to Pilate? Why didn't Jesus give that answer to Pilate and he saved it for Thomas? Could it be that Jesus knew something that we failed to address? That no matter how much I present to you the reality of Jesus being the truth, that I will never argue into accepting something that you are not willing to accept. I'll never argue into accepting something you're not open to. I can't force you to believe that Jesus is the truth. I can't convince you through clever reasoning or charismatic persuasion or nice fancy stories or funny jokes or whatever it is. Ultimately, if you refuse to believe it, it is because you do not have a relationship with God. Nor are you truly interested in one. That's what it says in John 8, 43 and 47. Harsh maybe, but absolutely true. Listen, friends, Pilate had plenty of witnesses. Jesus, his conscience, his wife's dream, his own understanding that Jesus was not a criminal, which he stated three times. The Jews also had plenty of witnesses. The witness of John the Baptist, the witness of Jesus' miraculous works, the witness of the Father at Jesus' baptism, the witness of scriptures, the witness of Moses, not to mention the witness of Jesus himself. You and I have all of those same witnesses. In addition, we have the witness of church history, as well as personal exposure to a myriad of lives radically changed by God's grace. And yet there still may be some of you who still do not believe. You're listening to the wrong voices, my friends. You're listening to the wrong voices ringing in your mind. You need to change your mind. The word in the Bible, the word that describes that transformation is the word metanoia. It means repentance. And we need to repent to change our minds. And according to the Apostle Paul, sin's fortress is in our minds. It holds up there and causes us to act out. And the ultimate consequences of our sinful behavior is that it alienates us from God and makes us hostile in mind toward God, says Colossians 1.21. So God in Christ... And through the Holy Spirit is seeking to change our minds. Paul says that we are to, quote, lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit and put on, well, first of all, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and then put on the new self which in the likeness of God 
has been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. That's Ephesians 4, 22 to 24. You know, if, when John Nash is first diagnosed with the disease, he's treated with medication. This banishes his delusions, but also stifles his personality. He becomes a hollow man, a mechanism. But gradually through his wife's immense patience, fortitude, and sacrifice, John learns to live with his disease untreated. Except for one thing, that he disciplines himself to no longer heed the people and the voices that his mind invents. Though even in his old age they appear to him as real as himself, Flesh and blood people with histories and personalities and needs and expectations clamoring for his attention and affection and obedience. He refuses to listen to those voices. He defies them. He ignores them and he walks right straight past them. You know why? Because he changes his mind. Friends, you all hear many voices in this world today. And so do I. You just have to decide which ones you're going to listen to. And which ones you're going to ignore. When you believe that Jesus is the truth, when you truly know him as the truth, you will no longer have to wonder whether or not what you hear is a lie. I'm going to let the word of God have the last word here. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know this, that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us how magnanimous and how incredible Jesus is. Through your word. Our Father, I pray that there's not a person in this place today that will not change their mind and receive the message of the truth. I pray your Holy Spirit would not leave them alone until they make that decision if they haven't already. And for those of us that have, I pray that you would remind us, Lord God, that there's so many voices that vie for our attention, that we ignore them, defy them, and run like crazy into the arms of Jesus. That is my prayer for this week for every single person here. So Lord, we look for those answers today. Be glorified and magnified in our lives. And may your truth, Jesus, prevail. For it's in his name, the only name worthy of being prayed in. Amen.